Hello everyone and welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. Here we'll discuss everything related to the wide world of automobiles, including culture, news, games, interviews, and events. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to this week's Sunday special. Today we're actually going to be looking at an old Mopar muscle car, which I find kind of fitting because this is going to be the 345th episode. And the cubic inch for a 5.7 liter Hemi V8 is 345 cubic inches. I find that kind of funny, even though we're talking about an old Mopar muscle car rather than a new Mopar muscle car. But anyway, we're going to be looking at an article that delves into the 1970 Dodge Super B. Looking at apparently how it got its, I think, how, what did my OneNote file? I, I think it said how it got its stripes or something like that. Anyway, let's get into it. Built to be in a class of its own, the Dodge Super B set new standards among muscle cars and remains a true classic today. This article is written by HotCars.com by a one Kenny Norman. When the Dodge Super B arrived in 1968, it was inspired by another Dodge vehicle, the Coronet, and it was headed for direct competition with Plymouth's counterpart, the Roadrunner. The first two years of the Super B received mild fanfare, but a drastic makeover for the 1970 edition and all subsequent model years gave it much more attention. The Super B was more of a classic car by that point thanks to its revamped functional interior, an aesthetically pleasing exterior. It was known as a muscle car, which refers to high-performance American coupes that may or may not feature both, both a rear-wheel drive and high-displacement V8. Throughout its history, Dodge produced only 33% as many Super B cars as Plymouth produced Roadrunners, making Super Bs a little more prized. After 1971, Dodge retired the Super B format in favor of the Charger, but a few years into the, into the 2000s, a new generation of Super Bs have revived the name. The inspiration for the Dodge Coronet Super B came from an earlier model of Dodge known as the Coronet. The Coronet debuted back in 1949 as a post-war car reaching muscle car status by the 1960s. In 1968, its appearance became similar to a Coke bottle as it had become rounder and smoother than previous Coronet models had been. It was also offered in a variety of formats such as two and four-door sedans, a four-door wagon, a two-door hardtop, and even a convertible. The engines followed suit, also becoming available in a variety of formats. The Coronet had several models made based on the engine the vehicle housed, such as the Coronet Deluxe. The Super V was one of these variations introduced midway through 1968, and it was easily recognizable thanks to its dual stripes near the tail. The Super V was pitched as a stripped-down Coronet that was only offered as a two-door hardtop coupe with an optional 440 Magnum engine. These early Super Bs had floor mats, heaters, and window trim come standard, but they also had a heavy bulge hood, dual exhaust, and a heavy-duty suspension. But what was the origin of the Super B name? It turns out that the name was derived from the body style of several of Chrysler's mid-sized cars, such as the Coronet, the Roadrunner, and the Charger. In fact, the Chrysler Roadrunner, the Chrysler Roadrunner, would go on to become a direct competitor for the Super B. All of these cars ha had a B-body de designation, hence the name Super B. Oh! That's, that's quite interesting. The Super B had an interior reminiscent of a race car, with its next-level gauges and speedometer dash, courtesy of the Dodge Charger. However, features like these and several others guaranteed the Super B would be more expensive than other Dodge cars were at the time. Meanwhile, the Roadrunner was designed to be more budget-minded, and it showed. The Super B also showcased a 6.3-liter Magnum Block V8 engine and a heavy-duty suspension system. The exterior also featured its signature B logo stripe that was wrapped around the tail, known as the Bumblebee stripe. 
the car managed to catch on in a racing demographic, and these early Super V vehicles would also gain secondhand popularity among teenage enthusiasts who wanted bargain used cars to drive. After the first two years, 1970 saw a massive overhaul in the appearance of the Super B. When only 27,800 Super Bs were sold in 1969, compared to 84,420 Roadrunners, Dodge began to consider that something about the Roadrunner was working where it wasn't regarding the Super B, and thus they decided a new approach was required to successfully compete. Both cars had similar engines, and come 1970, Super Bs were announced to have many of the same features, such as a new front grille. Other changes included a twin-loop design on the more complex front end. Further modifications came to the Super B the following year in 1971, though only 33% were sold compared to the Roadrunner. The Super B folded in 1971, and Dodge moved to the Charger platform after that. However, discontinuation was not the end for the Super B, thank God. The name was resurrected for early 21st century Dodge Charger models, specifically 2007, 2008, 2009, 2012, and 2013 model years. These second-generation Super Bs were partially manufactured in St. Paul, Minnesota, before they completed Dodge's Brampton, sorry, before they were completed in Dodge's Brampton, Ontario, Canada plant, where all the Dodge Chargers were finished. The Super B was even part of the Charger on Steroids series that was part of Chrysler Group's street and racing technology, and the 2007 Dodge Charger SRT8 Super B was the first vehicle to be included in this in this iteration. After 2013, the name and series was once again retired. So given that story was actually quite short, how about we do something, how about we do a first in Cody's Car Conundrum podcast history, and why don't I hit you with a double whammy of a story for the Sunday special. The article we're about to read now comes from All Par, and it's really strange, actually. I wasn't expecting, I didn't, I would never have thought this was a thing at all, and so I, I knew I had to do this story sooner or later, because it was just so out there overall. So what we're going to be talking about, or the article we're about to read, is a Humvee proposal from the mid-1980s from Dodge. This article is based on information from Peter T. Gruwich, I hope I got your name right, and Bob Sheaves. When the Army put out bids for a replacement for a new highly mobile military-wheeled vehicle, or Humvee, Chrysler was one of the bidders. Starting in the 1940s, Chrysler President K.T. Keller had devoted enormous resources to defense and other government projects. The company had a major role in the moon rockets and other post-war military projects. Both of, both of those I'll probably get into at a later date in a different Sunday special. Chrysler's highly regarded defense and space divisions, however, had largely been dismantled by 1980, their last hurrah being the M1 Abrams tank. And while there was still a truck engineering group, it was not as strong as it had been. The D-100 had been launched in 1961, though, but was now nearly two decades old. This set the stage for Chrysler's mid-1980s Humvee proposal. Despite the company's experience in military work and past all-terrain work, the new prototype was not competitive. Too much had been lost with the experienced engineers who had retired or were reassigned. The prototype was built on the Dodge D-Series pickup truck chassis. It had an aluminum body and was powered by an air-cooled Dewitz V8 diesel. The bodywork is made from flat panels with hard edges to reduce tooling and production costs. Front and rear overhangs were also short to improve ground clearance. The Chrysler vehicle lost the contest because the transmission overheated during the Baker Gray test and the lighting was not packaged as specified. In 1985, Pete Gruich was hired as part of a small team to re-engineer the prototype, fixing the problems that were the cause of the rejection by the government 
doing so in such a way that no dyes would be required to form the parts of the body, so General Dynamics could sell them to Thailand's army. Oh, we have a, we have a little bit here that Pete wrote. Okay, good, good, good. I solved the overheating problem by redesigning the hood and adding side vents to it to exhaust the air from the engine cooler, instead of venting out the transmission tunnel as originally designed. I also reconfigured the front lining to meet requirements. That was a tough job. The picture of the drafting room is a promotional photo taken around 1961. My father, Peter, is standing at the board with the scale in his hand. They were designing the orange 155mm Hwatzer? Howitzer? for lack of a better way of figuring out how to say it, how it's shown below. Under his direction, he started working at the Arsenal in 1958. We used to go to the McDonald's that is still on Van, probably some street, and order a bunch of burgers and watch the tanks drive around the test track. When the M1 tank was due to be tested, they put a wall around the track so that it, could be, so that it couldn't be seen. My father used to take me over to the engineering offices on Saturday and now and then check out an M113 and take me out to the track. Too bad they converted it and stopped using it for what it was for what it was meant to be. My father passed away in 1994, so he didn't have so he didn't have to watch it watch its demise. When they brought over the first HMMWV prototype, my father happened to stroll in to see it where I was working. Having just retired a few months earlier, he was dressed casually, was growing a beard, and not looking too professional. The vehicle was sitting there, running with the hood up, and it was surrounded by engineers, obviously looking at something that was not good. My father and I walked up to see as they turned the steering wheel to full lock either way. The frame was twisting where the steering gear was attached. One of the engineers said, that's no problem, we will just box the frame at the steering gear box. My dad looked at him and said, son, you can box that frame in front to the rear and it ain't gonna stop the twist. You guys did not take into account how much these combat wheels and tires weigh compared to the production pickup with tires and wheels. This is a showstopper. I heard the guy start, ask, start asking, who is that and what does he know? A couple of hours later, the owner of the company came over and said that he had heard that the problem was a showstopper, and what does your dad know? The next week, the program was cancelled. Not to brag, but my father was written up in the Macomb, perhaps it's Macomb, in the Macomb Daily in 1967 and called the Einstein of Warren, Michigan after writing his book Magnetism and the Atom. He invented the metal composition used for the armor on the M1 and developed a secret process for work hardening metals used for armor and submarine shells. He also developed a torsion bar system used on all torsion bar suspension track military vehicles. Pete Gruich had, in 1983, worked with AM General on their HMMWV proposal. Now we have some more Chrysler Humvee feedback. Tom Blado, Blado? I'm not sure how to say your name, I'm sorry. He wrote, it was my understanding that there were nine test vehicles made for this program, three from AM General, three from Teledyne, and three from Chrysler Defense. Through the years of searching for information on the Chrysler Humvee, or Humvees, I have never found much information on the subject. This looks like it might have been the second or third of the three test vehicles. I believe that I own Chrysler's, Chrysler's first test vehicle. The door tag on mine says EMT Pro PV1. And the best I can figure is that it reads Experimental Military Vehicle, sorry, Experimental Military Transport Prototype, Prototype Vehicle 1. Mine looks somewhat different from the one pictured in other photos, although some of the small details such as the rear swing arms and front coil springs let me know that this is the real, de uh, real deal. Martin, can't figure out how to say your last name, I'm sorry, wrote that this is an earlier, earlier Chrysler Defense revised version of the expanded mobile vehicle. It kind of looks like a militarized ATV from the photo I'm looking at here. As far as I know, mine was based on a one-ton frame and has a 360 V8 under the aluminum hood. 
I was told it was built in 1979 by Chrysler Defense in California. I saw a photo of the other one that looks like mine, and it had a Washington plate on it. Then we have the General Dynamics Humvee. Jason Elliott found a General Dynamics prototype Humvee in the Heartland of... Oh, wait, no. In the Heartland Museum of Military Vehicles, where a sign proclaimed that AM General, Chrysler Defense, Teledyne Continental, and FMC Corporation have responded to the call for new trucks built in 1982. Oh, wait, no, this is a different sentence. Built in 1982 with a body by Scheller Globe truck, the General Dynamics prototype below has a turbo 610 F81 engine with just seven hours of running time on it. That one looks slightly more modern. Martin wrote that he has General Dynamics prototype XM966 Humvee serial number 8, and that three of the 11 prototypes survived. Good God, that makes me sad. It makes me sad when very few prototypes of really any given car survive, because it, it really hits home how rare these things are. Anyway, though, that is going to be it for this Sunday special. I hope you enjoyed that double whammy when we have some short episodes. I'll probably do this more often just to make it a little bit longer. In any case, though, I hope you enjoyed. If you did, then please like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, then please like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. And if you do subscribe, I really do appreciate that. Please make sure to hit the little notification bell and then all notifications. That way you're notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road but don't have or want the Podbean mobile app, well, that's no issue. Just boot up wherever you get your podcasts before you set off. Type in Cody's Car Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I'll see you all next time. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full-throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.